All right, if you would, let's turn to Revelation chapter 6 tonight. Revelation chapter 6. And as we continue our study through the book of Revelation, we've arrived at the sixth chapter, uh, which uh, primarily deals with the opening of the seals. And uh, we're going to read just through the first few verses of uh, Roman, or, uh, Revelation chapter 6, beginning there in verse 1. The Bible says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death. And hell followed with him, and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beast of the earth. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every freeman, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us! And hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? I want to draw our attention tonight, of course, there is too much to cover in one evening, and I'm not even going to attempt to do that. But I want to draw our attention tonight really to the first two verses, primarily focusing our attention on verse 2. Notice again John's words here. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. 
And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. I want to deal with the subject tonight of the conquering Christ. With the opening of this first seal, we're introduced to a rider. This rider is upon a white horse. Now, as far as what my study and what my understanding teaches through the Scripture about this, is there really is not a guess about who this rider on the white horse is. We don't have to speculate who he is. The white horse has been symbolic of Christ Himself, and that's the position that I hold to. I hold to that this rider is Christ. He is riding as a triumphant king, a victorious captain, one that is already a conquering man of war. There is a reference to a white horse and a conquering uh, rider all the way at the end of the book of Revelation, towards the end, in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, which says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And remember, the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The very first thing that's being revealed here in this opening of this first seal is this great reminder of the sovereignty of Christ. His glorious sovereignty. Christ's continual and constant triumph over all things. His sure and certain conquest over all things. Over all enemies. The enemies of Christ are also the enemies of His children. Those who are the enemies of Christ would be the enemies of His church or His children. We can, in fact, safely trust a Christ who is to conquer, has conquered, and is conquering. Everything we've seen in the book of Revelation this far has been leading up to, really, this chapter of opening these seals. Now, I realize when we get to this portion of Scripture and you get to this part of Revelation, um, there is no doubt in my mind, I am 100% certain that there has probably been over the years a number of different messages, sermons you've heard on this. Some might even be tonight would say, I don't believe that this white horse is Christ at all. I think this is a conquering king of a conquering nation. And I certainly would say to you that you certainly have the right to your own study, the right to what you have interpreted that to be. Now, the position that I take on this is that this, this writer is Christ Himself. 
Now again, my intention will never be through this series to create a controversy or to create a division between each other as a result of this. Uh, There is, again, there's no doubt in my mind the amount of exposure, even in a church our size, and the amount of things we've heard over the years is going to vary. And as I said at the outset of the book of Revelation when we started this series, that our focus was going to be, for the most part, watching the victorious Christ throughout every chapter, throughout every verse, and throughout every subject that is brought up. And I mentioned that if we lose sight of Christ, if we lose sight of the ultimate victory that is in Christ, we are going to get pulled down into many different things that I can promise you, and I've seen this from experience, will lead to a divisive spirit. Now, I want to be as accurate and I want to be as truthful, of course, to the Word of God, but I will assure you uh, there is going to be perspectives, there's going to be differences, and uh, there may even be questions, and I welcome those. I certainly welcome questions, and uh, many of you take advantage of that, and we have good conversations about it. Uh, But I also believe that in order for us to move forward, uh, there's a direction that I'm going to take as far as what I'm interpreting and what I'm seeing this to be. And so again, I have no doubt that there may come a point in time uh, when we are seeing things from a different perspective. But I do want us to understand that, again, Revelation 6 is a pivotal portion of what has been happening in the first five chapters. Really, everything has been, we have been moving towards these seals. And this is really the first part of Revelation that starts to be uh, the part where we start to wonder, okay, what is happening now? What is happening then? What's happened in the past? What's going to happen tomorrow? And we're going to start getting into a lot of theological debates and theological thoughts over, okay, when is all of this taking place? And I hope tonight will at least give you at least an idea of where I believe uh, that this is teaching us, all right? And again, um, anything that causes a question, I certainly uh, want to talk about those things. But in order for us to be reminded again about what Revelation 6 and why it is so important about these seals, we have to remember uh, what we have already been witness to. Now, you'll recall that we understood that Revelation in the very first chapter, where we are shown how Christ we, are, we see Him in His majesty and in His power, and we see Him in His glory. We see Him as an exalted Savior. Uh, we, don't, we don't see Christ from the very beginning as one who is in defeat. We don't see Him as one who has suffered a great loss. We don't see Him as in a period of where uh, he's, He is in a losing position. We saw that we are assured of His presence within His churches. Now, I cannot stress enough how comforting that is to know that Christ is present in His churches. He's present through the Spirit. He's present and He is aware of what's going on in every church. The Son of God is continually, as we saw all the way back in the very first chapter, He's in the midst of His churches. There is a care, there's a protection, there is a provision for His own children. We saw how the the mention of the messengers and those that were in those churches, those 
pastors, those that were shepherding those flocks, uh, they are in His own right hand. If we know that Christ is continually attending and attentive to His churches, that He's fully aware of what's happening, He's fully uh, engaged in what we are, are experiencing, I would ask you, friends, what, what do we actually have to fear? What, what is there in this world to actually be afraid of? If Christ is truly a conqueror, if Christ is truly He who is going, going forth to conquer and conquering and has conquered, if He's conquered sin, death, hell, the grave, He's conquered Satan, if He's conquered all of those things, what do we really have to be afraid of? Now again, the book of Revelation always brings us to a place where we, we begin to get uh, bogged down in the fearful events that are taking place. But do you realize for the child of God that no matter how bad and whatever the church experiences, it will be nothing in comparison to the glory that awaits us. And it will be nothing to think about this, the, the short momentary affliction that we'll go through. If we are called as believers to go through a great period of persecution, if we are called to go through and actually give our life for the cause of Christ, do you realize that the cause of Christ is worth giving our lives for? But we don't have to fear. We don't fear what man can do to us. You know, I do see a lot and I do, I've heard a lot over the years. And there does seem to be an interpretation of revelation in some of the prophecies that suggests that there's no way the church is going to go through any struggles or any tribulation. That almost the interpretations leave us to say, let's find a way to make sure the church doesn't have to suffer at all. But do you realize the church has suffered for hundreds of years? There are people that are members of the body of Christ right now that are suffering greatly while we sit in our comfortable American Christianity. Just because we don't see persecution on the level, we think, well, all this must be future. And certainly, and I've heard this, God's not going to allow His church to go through any struggle or any persecution or even tribulation. And you ask, well, why is that? Well, there really is not a good answer. Why suddenly... Do we, if we are part of the generation that we see the return of Christ, why would we be suddenly spared from any type of trouble? When generations have gone before us who have deeply struggled, have given their very lives, I think we're a victim. We're a victim of the present. We're a victim of believing that God would never allow or do this. But remember, what do we have to actually fear if the Son of God, the conquering Christ, is actually personally with us through the power of the Spirit? We are held by an omnipotent hand. We're not being held by a ruler of a nation. We're not being held by a governor. 
My safety, my security, my hope is not in any other human being on this planet. My hope is in a conquering Christ. Christ Himself, in Revelation 2 and 3, we read about the letters of Christ to those seven churches. Those letters revealed various stages. Some churches in a great spiritual decline. Other churches were given some commendation. But it does teach us that even today, there are many different believers in many types of churches. There are people in churches today that are in churches that have been in spiritual decline for decades. There are churches that are like the church at Philadelphia, where the Lord Himself could not find anything to condemn them for. But it was not just during the time and the age in which these letters were written. This is still apparent and happens today. If the Christ was to write new letters to the churches, these letters would be very similar in what we see now. Churches, no matter how good they think they are, no matter how high and holy we look at ourselves, we constantly need the discipline of God. And if you think we have gotten to a place where you don't need God's discipline anymore, we're missing the realities of what is supposed to be taking place. We need discipline. We need to be corrected. We need to be reproved. We need to be rebuked. But we also need correction. We need to be reminded this is the right way as opposed to this is the wrong way. But we also need encouragement. We need to be encouraged. I need encouragement. You need encouragement. I'm afraid of a person that says, I don't, need an encur- I don't need to be encouraged. As respectfully as I can say it, there's something wrong with you if you don't need any encouragement at all. We all need to be encouraged. We all need instruction. We all need to be corrected. We all need discipline. And these are all the things. You know, oftentimes we hear people praying for revival and they say we're praying for revival because this particular place needs it. Let me just fill you in. We all need a revival. And it's not a revival meeting we need. We need a revival of our love for Christ. We need a revival of being reminded that we're not supposed to be fearful people. Folks, we can't look at the book of Revelation and be frightened by everything we see. And we can't be wondering, well, God would not allow us to go through that. He's not going to allow us. What boundaries or what basis would we, would we, would we find that upon? Is it because we're, we don't need to be corrected anymore? We don't need to be disciplined anymore? That we suddenly now are the purified bride of Christ? And uh, certainly God's not going to let us go through trials and struggles. So then what do we say about those who were burned at the stake for the cause of Christ? Were they being punished? Or were they a 
living and dying testimony of a conquering Christ. See, we look at the martyrs and we then see the Bible that says they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. We act as if suffering is suddenly something to be avoided and something we're not supposed to have to go through. And yet, the Bible says to be counted worthy to suffer. So if we come to a conclusion in Revelation that the church is not going to suffer through anything, that we're just going to escape it all, Again, I wonder what basis that happens on. We're okay if Israel suffers, but not us Gentiles. So the reality is, is that when we think about those letters, we constantly need to be reminded of those things. But we also know that because of these needs, the Lord faithfully supplies us the spirit of grace. Folks, listen, there's not a one of you today, and I know this is a different message tonight, but there's not a one of you today that would be standing in the things of God if it was not His grace holding you up. You are only being held up by the grace of God. You are not being held up by your own spiritual stamina, your own self-motivation. You are being held up by the grace of God. The same grace that saved you is what's holding you up. What does grace tell me? Grace tells me about a Savior. It tells me about a conquering Christ who has conquered everything that's fearful. If it wasn't for His grace, we would all just wither away and turn and go our own way. Yet we have great promises about the perseverance of the saints. By the way, the perseverance of the saints doesn't mean that you're not going to go through struggles and suffering. In Revelation 4, we were allowed to ascend with John into heaven itself. What did we see there? We saw the throne, which is a symbol of God's sovereign power and His absolute dominion. God is not sharing His throne with any other ruler, with any other leader. If Christianity is outlawed on a worldwide basis, God is still on the absolute sovereign throne of dominion. You say, what would we do if Christianity gets banned? I think it's just a matter of time. We may not see it. Our kids might. Our grandchildren might. But God is still absolutely Sovereign. He's always been absolutely sovereign. There's never been a moment in time when God gave up a little bit of ground and says, I'm going I'm to give you a little bit of ground, Satan. Even in the garden, God didn't lose ground. The first pronouncement of the Gospel is Genesis 3.15. It's announced in Genesis to the serpent, your head is going to get crushed. Oh, the Savior's heel is going to be bruised. But what does it mean to crush? It means to completely and fully conquer. Not crush and he's still wiggling a little bit. No, he's conquered. Do you know you're not supposed to live 
You are not supposed to live in the fear of Satan himself. And how many people are paralyzed because of Satan? He's crushed. He was crushed on the cross. Now, is he seeking and is his demons and are they work? Are they active and at work? Absolutely. Can they ever get the victory over a people of God? No. He's already been conquered. Remember, we have to understand that the throne of God is the very center of the entire universe. It's the center of all creation. Those 24 elders that were representatives of the whole body of God's elect. Not just Israel, but all of God's elect. The whole body and the four beasts that are there who continually worship before the throne. And then we learned last week even about the thousands and thousands of other angels. But in chapter 4, again, we're allowed to see God's wisdom, His power, His glory, and His greatness. And don't forget, we were plainly taught, saw it clear as day, that God's ultimate purpose in everything is the glory of Himself. Everything God's doing is for His own glory. He saved you for His own glory and that's the only reason. He didn't save you just to keep you out of hell. He saved you for His glory. He saved you for Himself. When you read chapter 4 again, you can almost, and we saw it, the Lord saying to John, and I think, folks, I think we've got to, and this is again, you might disagree with the approach that I'm, I'm looking at the Scriptures going forward in Revelation. But you can see John in almost every chapter as he opens and these seals are opened and these chapters are revealed that no matter what you read, no matter what you see, no matter what you hear, no matter what you experience, you have absolutely positively no reason to fear. Now, if you believe in a Christ who's conquered, then we shouldn't fear. How many times does Scripture say, don't fear? Fear not. You know what the number one problem we have? You know what our number one issue is? We're fearful. We're fearful of everything. Why should we not be fearful? Because everything that's happening, including these seals that are open, and some of these seals when they open, there's some pretty scary things going to take place. There's some scary things that have already taken place. It's amazing to me that we sometimes look at Revelation and we say, this is all stuff that's going to happen in the future. This, some of this has, been, has already happened. And yet, what's the common theme? No matter what you see, no matter what you hear, no matter what you read, God's purposes are not able to be altered. You realize God's plan is not being changed by anything the world does. Nothing's different. Nothing is changing. Again, as John opened that chapter, when the Lamb opened one of those seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. John is inviting us to see what's happening here. There is no cause for alarm or for fear. If you look back with me at Isaiah, I love this passage, Isaiah 46. 
Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Sometimes we struggle with, can I really trust everything that's happening? Isaiah 46, look with me at verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure. Everything is from His hand according to His good pleasure. Sometimes we ignore these verses after it, sadly. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted that are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Everything, he says, my counsel shall stand. It's not just his counsel towards Israel. It's not just his counsel towards one group of people. His entire counsel for everything that takes place is all being accomplished according to his purposes. There is never any cause for fear. God's purposes are unable to be altered. In Revelation 5, we were given a clearer vision of the throne and also the book and the Lamb, who is referred to as the Lamb that was slain. The throne symbolizes God's total sovereignty over all things. The book, we, we learned, was written within and on the backside and sealed with seven seals. It represents the plan of God. His purposes, His decrees, including that mysterious plan of predestination which so many people are afraid of and they run away from. But folks, for us to sit here tonight and think that you are going to get to the end of the book of Revelation and you're going to say with 100% certainty, I understand it all. I can teach this to anybody. I know how it's all going to play out. That's impossible. There are aspects of God that you are, we are told you are not going to know. So often what happens with the book of Revelation is we miss Christ and we argue about what we think instead of ultimately what is the book, who is the book of Revelation about? It's the revealing of Christ. That ultimately in the end does what He's been doing He conquers. There has not been an enemy that has stood in front of Christ that has conquered him. Now Satan thought he conquered him. Satan thought even in the garden that he had gotten a victory. He certainly thought victory was won when Christ was hanging upon a cross. Yet every one of those purposes, God ordained the very means in which would take Christ to the cross. 
He actually set apart the man who would be the betrayer. Judas Iscariot was always going to be the betrayer. To teach a doctrine that said it could have been any of the twelve. No, it could not have been because it said it was always going to be Judas Iscariot. Because God planned it that way. So when we hear those foolish sermons about, would you have been a Judas? And the argument there holds no water. Judas was already ordained before the foundation of the world that he was going to be the one. Because all things, God even takes evil and works it out for his good. And then we make foolish arguments. Well, doesn't that make God the author of sin? It absolutely does not. But yet, when we understand that there are parts of God and part of His plan that are going to be unknown, there is still part of the mystery. Now when we see the Lamb of God and we see now that He was the only one that was worthy to take the book, what was His worthiness based on? His worthiness was based upon His effectual sacrifice and the atoning that He did for sin. Christ is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. That means it was planned with a covenant with the Father and the Spirit that Christ was going to be the way. It's always been that. There's never been any other way. He's worthy to open the book. Now I know we think, all right, well, I can understand everything in this book. I can understand every one of these seals. I can tell you exactly how it's going to happen. I would say you cannot know with 100% certainty everything that's going to happen exactly how it's going to happen. But I know that the seals that are being opened and the book that's being opened is being opened by He who alone, and we learned, is the only one who's worthy not only to open the book, but He's the only one that's worthy to read the book. See, we can think, well, just give me a crack at it. I'll tell you what it all means. No, all we get, and I don't say that lightly, all we get is what the Bible tells us. Now we're all, again, I'm speaking for myself. If this hits you, then it hits you. But we are all prone, we are all prone to take something and to apply it as truth and not really base that truth upon what the Bible actually says. I've been guilty of it many times. To where I don't really see it scripturally, but somebody told me that's what this means. That's why when we go through here, I can assure you, I can assure you however many years this takes to get, there's going to be numerous times you're going to say, I don't agree with you. That's totally okay. Because you understand that there are things that we are not going to get to the full bottom of. But I will tell you this, you can get so bogged down in it, you're going to miss, you're going to miss the purpose of the book of Revelation itself, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's always been about Him. This book reveals and fulfills that book of those seals being opened. It's a book that is the decrees of God. 
The entire universe, the entire creation is being ruled by the throne of God and he who sits upon the throne. And we learned last week also that seated upon that throne next to the father on the right hand is the lamb that was slain. Christ serves as that mediator. He is our redeemer. That role and office as mediator and redeemer is an unalterable truth. There is never going to be another mediator and there's never going to be another redeemer. There is never going to be anyone else who's worthy to open these books and certainly not worthy to open these seals. Ultimately, we do know some things about how this will happen. We do know that in the end, not a single one of God's elect is going to cease in being saved. All of God's elect are going to be there. None of God's elect are going to be left behind. God's not going to overlook one of His own. Christ is not going to lose one of His sheep. Ultimately, all of God's elect are going to be saved. I don't mean to be cute with this, but there is not going to be a vacant seat in heaven where somebody is supposed to be who was one of God's who got left out. You can't tell me and I can't tell you exactly, as we've been learning on Sunday mornings, how, mon- how many individuals of Israel will be saved. Now I know there's going to be a controversy when we get to 144,000. There are people that take the position, that's a literal 144,000. That's, it's 144,000 exact people of Israel and that's it. I don't think those numbers are meant to be perfectly exact. But it does make mention of those. Again, ultimately, no man knows. We certainly don't know how many of the rest of the world that are of non-Israel are going to be saved, but we do know all of God's elect. God's elect not only includes Israel, but it also includes the Gentiles. And we do know this, that all those who are of God's elect will be there, and we know that what we will be doing eternally is praising God and the Lamb that was slain. I do know one thing for sure. You're not going to be, and I'm not going to be debating theological truths with Him. I'm not going to be questioning what is this and why because I will then be in the very presence of Christ and I will be looking and seeing Him as He is and be like Him without sin. Yet, we are human, right? So the book of Revelation... Daniel, Ezekiel, you take a lot of the different books. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of things that make us wonder. But we do know that one of those main lessons we learned from, again from chapter 5 was that the Lord our God is carrying out His will and purposes. And if we believe what Paul writes in Romans 8, for the good of His people and the glory of His own name. God is not going to bring reproach upon His own name. And He's doing it for our good. But to tell somebody, if if you're a Christian, you're never going to suffer. Don't worry about the end times because you're never going to suffer. You cannot dogmatically say that. 
Christians have suffered for generations. And again, what is there to fear if we are in Christ? The Lord is omnipotent. He reigns. We who believe have absolutely no reason to fear. Yet you say, that's impossible. It is impossible in of ourselves to not be fearful. It's impossible for us not to be fearful when times of trials come and times of trouble, times of affliction, times of sorrow. Those people, and I hope that it's part of your normal everyday prayer life to pray for the persecuted church. Tell the persecuted church that there's no suffering for the cause of Christ. Tell them what they're going through is in tribulation. Tell them what they're going through when they are killed for their faith. God's people aren't going to suffer at all. But yet there are end times philosophies out there that say God's people, God would never allow any of his people to suffer. How do we answer for the millions who have suffered already? There's no human answer for it. Yet again, it doesn't matter what your end times position looking at this is from a standpoint of suffering may very well come. And it may very well come to your house. It may very well come to this church. And I can tell you that what is going to be your satisfaction and your hope and your, and your confidence is going to be in a conquering Christ. Folks, when a believer draws their last breath on a deathbed, I can assure you they're thinking about one thing and one thing only. They're thinking about what Christ has done for me. They are thinking this has been exactly what Christ said. I could trust Him not just in my life, but I could trust Him in my death. They're not asking questions like we are now. They're simply saying, I'm trusting in that Christ that saved me. That Christ that conquered. That Christ that conquered the Satan and conquered the death and conquered hell and the grave. Look, we know that one day all things will be made new. We know there will be a creation of a new heavens and a new earth. So as we come, and again, we're going to talk about this a lot more next week, as we come to Revelation 6, we still see the same Christ that we've seen in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And now, He's opening the books. That Lamb that's worthy to open them, the same Christ that we have the faith and the confidence in is now the one who's opening these seals and revealing to us the mysteries, some of them a little bit more clear than others, of God's purposes. But one thing I can tell you that no matter how dark the prophecy seems, no matter how dark the picture is, we need to keep in mind that God's purposes and God's decrees and God's sovereignty is still very much what's at work. So if we read something a 
horrifyingly bad. Christ is still the Lamb that was slain. In that chapter, as we see, we, only, we see six of the seven seals opened. The seventh seal is not open until chapter 8. But I do believe that we can, we can get ourselves into a bad place, and I think you're, we're going to make a mistake. Again, your, your background might be different, but this is, this is the approach that I believe is biblically correct. It's a mistake to just simply make the seals and the horsemen that are mentioned in chapter 6 as just representatives of specific times. To simply say each horse is a particular time, but rather viewing it from the various trials and difficulties through which even God's people must pass through as they make their journey to heaven. Those horses and those horsemen, horsemen have, they are symbolic in many ways. I believe that those horsemen and the horses certainly are telling us something about what is going to happen, but I don't think you can put a definite timeline on it. But I will tell you this, it's an indefinite time before the Lord Jesus Christ's second coming. Now those things that we may expect to happen, those things that may happen, those things that have happened, as I mentioned, some things that we read in Revelation already occurred. Yes, there are things that took place during the destruction of Jerusalem that you can't just discount and say that's not what he was talking about. It, it, some of it is related directly to that. But everything that you see, there is still a reference to the experience of what God's people in this world and in every age and in the ages to come can expect to go through. But folks, what's the hope then? The assurance that I have in Christ. Folks, I'm telling you, there are people that have the end times quote-unquote right and they've missed Christ altogether. And it is possible for you to do that. It is possible for you to put a timeline together and maybe you're right and put all the prophecies together and you have them in a nice PowerPoint presentation and you've got it all and all the arrows are going this way and you've got arrows going up, arrows going down, big circular things and you you got it all right. But you don't have Christ. Folks, I believe personally, again, I may be saying things tonight that you disagree with, it's totally okay. I personally believe that some of the greatest deception is taking place right now and has been taking place right now is to get our minds distracted off of Christ and to argue and fight and fuss over end time things so that our minds are pulled away from the reality of a conquering Christ. Now again, I think discussions are great. Those of you that come and talk to me, I love talking with you. I love it. But I've learned over the years that there are some things I have to look at you and I have to say, you know what, I don't know. And my personal opinion from study of Scripture is, is we may never know. But I do know this. The promises of God are still sure. 
The foundation is still in place. Christ is not going to lose. If every Christian in this planet gets wiped out, every true believer, what is the threat to us? We go to heaven to be with our Savior. That's the big threat. If, we, if they take your life through persecution, they take your life through affliction and suffering, guess what you get? You get Christ. Everything ultimately has to come down to the reality of what's happening that Christ ultimately conquers. Now, I believe that the purpose of chapter 6, yes, deals with the opening of the seals. And I'm going to do the very best I can with God's help, obviously, to try to get us through these. Is it going to be spotless? Probably not. But I do understand that the purpose of chapter 6 is to assure us that the church, God's people, if we suffer trials, if we go through affliction, if we go through tribulation, if we go through persecution, God is always in control. Christ is still our Savior. He's still a mighty conqueror. And as Romans says, we are more than conquerors in Him. Now next week, we'll get deeper into that seal and about the conquering part. And what is He conquering? And we'll touch on the second seal and talk about uh, what that is about. But folks, I hope at the end of it, and I hope when we, when we, as we journey through this, again, that we don't miss, we don't miss Christ in it all. Let me just finish with this and then we will pray and we'll sing a closing hymn. I was brought back again to the end of Romans chapter 8, beginning, I could, I could start anywhere in Romans chapter 8, but I was, I was just brought back to verse 35 of Romans 8. And again, I know this, this is a verse that we, we talk about now when we talk about the protection, but notice what Paul was saying. Who shall separate us? from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. As it is written, for thy sake, the name of Christ, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Now, I don't believe Paul just wrote this as his calling card. When Paul says he was persuaded, it's more than just a little bit, I'm, I'm swayed to the majority side. This means to be fully confident, fully trusting, and fully in the hope. He says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. That's my hope tonight. My hope is in the promises, the covenants, that what God has promised to His people He's not, going to go, he's not going to return on those. 
and that we can have hope and we should not be fearful. Let's close our time tonight by, I think, singing a very appropriate hymn for what we've dealt with tonight, 177 in Christ alone, 177.